Hello and welcome to Celtic History Podcast, Episode 2, Evidence and Humanization. Hello and welcome back. Last time we discussed how we define a Celt and two theories of their origin. We discussed the traditional theory of a Central European origin, largely through material culture, and briefly touched on the Western origin theory, which draws from linguistic evidence and known connections through maritime trade on the exceptionally metal-rich Atlantic coast. I aim to expand on these themes, started in last episode, through the example of a people who lived almost 5,000 years ago. The significance of these people to our story are dear Celts trace their own language, genes and much of their cultural roots to these people. And it is the earliest chronological point we can likely go to trace the origins of our Celts in cultural and linguistic as well as genetic terms. It also gives me a chance to explore some concepts of how we gather and interpret evidence in three key areas, archaeology, language, and genetic science. Discussing this Chalcolithic people is also a gateway to understand another huge aspect of both their story and our story going forward, and in fact, the story of all of human history. Migration. In this context, migration is the movement of genetic populations, language, and material culture. Population migrations are caused by what archaeologists refer to as push and pull factors. Some examples. A 9th century Scandinavian farmer who hears of rich plunder and soft, easy-to-till soil in England, going a Viking and deciding to stay. This is a pull factor. Our farmer is pulled by opportunity presented by the movement over a great distance. The perceived benefit has to be worth the actual risk of crossing the North Sea and potentially risking death and ruin. Or, another example, a massive number of Goths crossing the Danube all at once into the Roman Empire to flee from the Huns. This is a push factor. A population is pushed out by another population, again, with the potential benefits outweighing the risks. To me, it boils down to when people decide the devil they know is no longer preferable to the devil that they don't. Now, migration can also be a trickle, not just a flood, like the examples that we gave. But language can move in other ways, generally more subtle ways. It may move as a result of trade relations or assimilation into the surrounding population. For example, our own dear Gauls losing their Celtic language through assimilation into the Latin-speaking Roman Empire. Or, to take a more modern example, the widespread adoption and use of English, first as a result of the colonization perpetuated by the British Crown, then due to the fact that it was the most widespread language when the internet was adopted. We discussed last time that it is often the case that a single language is adopted when there are strong enough incentives or a need arises to communicate more efficiently. This often can be traced through the genetic evidence as infants and children are the most effective at learning multiple languages, usually through parental relationships whereas adults have a much harder time learning new language and also have to be heavily incentivized. Something else to keep in mind. 
Languages are not static things. They are ever-changing. How many new words have been adopted in English or other languages since the invention of the smartphone, for example? There are a number of words and languages and contexts that didn't exist 10, 20 years ago. Languages are living things. They are a key to the continuity of the human experience. It shows how the importance of certain phrases or words or cultural context changes with time, often pretty rapidly too. And finally, the archaeological record. Details of the objects, human or animal remains, or styles of burial and settlement patterns. Basically, things we can find physical evidence of. Archaeologists are pretty damn skilled at finding whole peoples and cultures just from what they find in digs and comparing the results across other dig sites. But we discussed some of the inherent problems with this last time. If your home was dug up in a thousand years, would they be able to tell what language you spoke based on your kitchen utensils? Unlikely. I mean, if you looked at all the furniture in most modern homes, you'd end up thinking that everyone was Swedish. This is why each of our three pillars, just mentioned, have to lean on each other in order to get a whole view of something that may have actually been a reality in the past. No easy thing. However, my favourite is what I would call the fourth and shakiest pillar. Using the context of the biological evidence, the archaeological evidence, and of course, tracing the linguistics, we can try and get an actual idea of how people thought and felt and how they perceived the world around them. That fourth pillar to me is humanization, and I hope to keep it as a theme going in this podcast. However, it is the area with the most speculation and the least tangible evidence, but I will heavily lean on the other three pillars. So with that in mind, Using this structure, let's try and define these earliest ancestors of the Celts and so many other peoples. We get our name from archaeologists. These people who are known as the Yamnaya, which literally means related to pits. A material culture discovered in modern-day Ukraine and Russia we have no idea what they actually called themselves, and Yomnaya may be more of a cultural package than a natural group of peoples who identified with each other. When we reach the point in this discussion, when we're talking about how rapidly and widely they spread, it's worth noting that it's the popularity of this system which may be the thing that's so pervasive. But the name comes from the shallow pit graves that were covered by great mounds of earth, known as Kurgans. If you're already a history fan, you might recognize them from the ancient Scythians of the Classical period, or the Mongols of the Medieval period. Geographically, what these three peoples have in common is they all live on the vast superhighway, grass sea that is the Eurasian steppe. However, we know for a fact that Scythians, Huns, Mongols, etc. travelled, fought, and even largely lived on horseback, and were 
almost entirely nomadic. Whereas at least some of the Yamnaya were only semi-nomadic. And we have little evidence for actual horseback riding. There is evidence from related peoples which predate the Yamnaya in the east in modern Kazakhstan, known as the Botai culture. There is evidence of hunting and herding actually on horseback. It is also widely believed that their main subsistence strategy was hunting wild horses on horseback. Now, to me, that seems the definition of if you can't beat them, join them. We know this from evidence of bit wear on the teeth of the horses found in gravesites of these related peoples. But as of yet, I found no evidence of this with the Yamnaya burials. Their cultural zones border each other, so exchange of culture and ideas is natural and even likely. And we do know horses were very important to the Yamnaya. One grave was found with 40 horses, which were butchered and likely the meat was eaten during a grand funeral feast. That's a lot of horse meat. Along with horses, a proto-cattle somewhere between an ox and a modern cow, an ancestor of Uruks. Though not seen as a prestigious animal, sheep were also likely part of the herds the Yamnaya relied on, almost certainly. As I mentioned, they were certainly nomadic, or semi-nomadic at least, herders, moving their herds from pasture to pasture. From herding animals, the Yamnaya are able to get many materials that they need to survive. Meat, tools, and building materials from the fat, bone, and sinew. But they also were keen metal workers and possessed bronze dangers, copper-headed axes, and horse-head maces with stone heads. Metalwork was likely introduced from the West, from the sophisticated cultures in Europe, but they adopted it with vigour, becoming keen in this practice themselves. The harsh, competitive environment of the steppe has always been a melting pot for innovation. The Amnaya even brought milk drinking into the mix, and they brought genes for lactase persistence with them into Europe. However, we can see they relied heavily on this, as too much lactose can block iron absorption and cause anemia, and indeed we see evidence of this on their remains. This was not a new lifestyle, however, and I encourage you to visit Tides of History, which is a wondery podcast, which does a whole series on prehistory if you want to understand more about animal and crop domestication. If you're interested in the history that we're going to be talking about over in the next few episodes and the history before it and want to go into more detail and outside the scope of just the Celtic lens, I highly encourage you to listen to all of his prehistory episodes, but specifically his ones on Proto-Indo-European languages and the Yamnaya, especially some of his interviews on how animal domestication came around. It blew me away. Anyway. Whether they were pulled by horses or cattle, we do know that the Yamnaya used wagons, as they are heavily present in their burials. Most agree that the introduction of the wagon, likely introduced from old Europe, had a massive impact on the peoples of the steppe like the Yamnaya. Why? Well, once you move from on foot to a wagon, the number of animals you can successfully herd doubles. The like result of this? Competition. 
more animals means more grazing land, the ability to feed more people, which leads to greater population, which means increased competition. There are a number of likely consequences to these factors. When there are more people competing over fewer resources in a hierarchical society like the ones present on the steppe, it is fairly typical to see an increase in violence. The wagon also facilitates warfare, hit-and-run raiding, as well as cattle raiding. But this is where one of the key features of Yamnaya society really develops. The systems that they had to deal with, the limited pasture, the mobile lifestyle, and the potential for conflict. Now, another reason I wanted to talk about the Yamnaya is they introduce a concept which is very important for understanding many pre-modern, particularly ancient societies. The guest-host relationship and the client system, which is present in many tribal societies. The guest-host relationship was an absolutely essential part of Yamnaya society. In fact, their word for guest and host is the same word. Gusts. A guest-host relationship is an Indo-European idea that spreads over many societies, and if you're familiar with some classical texts like the Iliad and the Odyssey, you will see this theme come up a number of times. The basic premise is that if I am a stranger in your settlement, and I come to your door, and I say, I invoke guest rights, you are obligated by ancient social custom to accept and take on that, that guest and then you become the host. You're obliged to provide me every hospitality while I'm in your residence. You would feed me your best food, give me your best bed. Perhaps we would tell stories around the fire. There would be music and you, you would introduce me to your family without reservation. However, if I invoke that, then I have to extend that same relationship to you. If you're ever in my town, I've got to do the exact same for you. And in many societies, that obligation was inherited. Some of you may be thinking of the example in Homer's Iliad, when two warriors are getting ready to fight and then they suddenly realize that they cannot come into conflict because their grandfathers invoked that guest-host relationship. And as a result, they were obliged to extend that same hospitality to each other. In the context of these pastoral societies, that would extend to pasture owned by another chief, or huikpotis. As you can imagine, having to move your herds and that pasture land being so finite and valuable, you would constantly have to invoke guest-host relationships in order to even pass through other pastures, let alone graze on someone else's. And at times, these oaths did successfully avoid conflict. Oaths were taken very seriously in the ancient world, and particularly from the Yamnaya. The second aspect is the client-patron relationship. Now, if your entire subsistence strategy is based on a mobile herd, you can be suddenly bankrupt by a bad storm or a cattle raid from which you can't respond. That's you. You're done. That's your entire livelihood. However, if you're the big man on the block and you have clients, 
you can invoke that relationship and borrow cattle from your clients. However, then you owe them. Largely in the other situation, if you're the big man on the block with the biggest herd, your clients come to you, I've had a terrible storm, I've lost half my herd, I'm going to be destitute. You can turn around and graciously offer as many of your cattle as you're willing to spare. Because he now owes you, which means you own him. Now you can see the potential for social advancement. Opportunistically, you can invoke that and use the power of, of that relationship to extend the number of clients that you have, extend your reach, extend your power. And if you're a lower client and your patron ends up in a bad situation, you can graciously offer him to help him out. And then suddenly your standing is advanced. This is part of the package that was so key to the hierarchy of the Yamnaya, which led to their success. And our boys, the Celts, were definitely a hierarchical tribal society. Another defining feature our Celts owe to these Yamnaya, their language. The Yamnaya are so important because many linguists, backed up by the genetic evidence, believe in what's called the Kurgan hypothesis. That is, that the Indo-European language group originates from the Ponto-Caspian steppe, where our Yamnaya are from. The original hypothesis was based on the linguistic evidence. Looking at later Indo-European languages and the earliest form of Indo-European languages, there were a number of words based around wagons, wheels, and that kind of transportation. And the best fit for this appears to be the Yamnaya. In what's known as Proto-Indo-European, that is, the ancestor language from which all Indo-European languages come, we have three words for wheel. Hurki, rote, and kweklo. We have quell for the turning of a wheel. We have words for yoke, wheel hub, wagon shaft, and even a verb for conveyed in a wagon. Quick. So, what is the Indo-European language family? Linguists have, for many years, identified a huge language family called the Indo-European language family. This family of languages is responsible for the languages spoken by 94% of Europe today, as well as languages in India or Iran. It's responsible for around 48% of the world's spoken languages. Think about that. That's insane. Indo-European then divides into a number of branches off that tree. One branch is the Germanic languages, from which we get the Norse languages, German itself, not to mention English and French. But the branch we're most interested in is what's known as the Italo-Celtic branch. This is the branch of languages that not only spawned our Celtic languages, but also the Italic group, from which comes Latin. Linguists and historians have long identified that there is some cultural continuity between these very different groups. 
all down to the fact that they all come from a common ancestor, Proto-Indo-European. Okay, Jack, so you expect us to believe that they know where the language came from just because the Yamnaya used wagons and they have all sorts of words that are in the context of a wagon? Okay, still not convinced? Let me put this case to you. Language is all about context. I'm going to take Scotland as a prime example. Do you know how many different ways there are to say that it's raining in Scotland? It could be Gaidriker Smerry, or it could be Peltnadun. We have all these ways of saying this because we get so many different colourful ways for it to, well, rain. I'm only speculating, but I imagine that if you look at the Berber populations in the Sahara, they're unlikely to have quite as many ways to say that it's raining. Language is about context. If it doesn't rain very much, you don't really have to have that many ways of describing the nuances of rain. You know, it's raining or it's not. Well, if you're still not convinced, and you're a bit more of a hard science person, I have good news for you. The genetic evidence largely backs up the Kurgan hypothesis. Okay, as much as I hate to bog down you romantic history lovers in hard science, genetics is increasingly filling out the story and context in which we view our history. I mentioned earlier that when we look at Celtic DNA, it doesn't support a Western origin theory. But it's not as simple as then going, oh, you know, we can look at the genetic evidence and we know exactly where they come from. We've just been able to rule out Western origin largely, but that may change as the genetic evidence advances and the archeological evidence advances. But with their language, the Amnaya most certainly brought their genes. Specifically, the male genes. More specifically, the Y haplogroup, which is the patrilineal line. The Amnaya bring what's known in shorthand is R1B-Z2103. Don't worry, you don't have to remember that. We'll just call it the R1B haplogroup. Today, this haplogroup is mainly associated with Western and Northwestern Europeans. And the R1B-L21, which is a subclade brought by the Bell Beakers, is heavily present in the British Isles in Brittany, but not Galatia. But we will return to that later down the road, don't you worry. So, not only does this line up with the Kurgan hypothesis of a migration from the Eurasian steppe into Central and then Western Europe, but it also tells us something about the nature of this migration. These genes don't just show up. They totally dominate the greater part of Europe, even till today. These people are the ancestors of most Europeans. While the subclades may vary, most have R1B. And then, of course, we can bring it back to our third pillar. The archaeology changes too. We see characteristic Yamnaya burials go further and further north and west and southwest into the Hungarian plain. The Hungarian plain, incidentally, is like a grassland, much like the steppe. It's an island of the steppe within Central Europe. 
but the main branch we're going to follow is the ones that go into Central and Northern Europe. From here, there's a very interesting cultural synthesis that happens that creates the cultures of the early Bronze Age. And we're going to use that context to talk about how cultural exchange happens, and also genetic exchange. No, not the birds and the bees. Okay, now some housekeeping before we finish today. Now please bear with me. This podcast is very young, and I'm blown away by the response of the first main episode, as well as the introduction slash trailer. Thank you. Thank you all so much. It's absolutely blown me away. But I have to ask something of you now. I really need feedback. I know it's popular. It's blown up in the last 30 days. I'm absolutely shocked. But I don't know why. I don't know what people like about the podcast. I don't know what people don't like about the podcast. I don't know what things I'm not doing that I could be doing. And and another lovely thing would be just to know who's listening. What's your backgrounds? What's your interests? What brought you to me? How did you find me? And what are you looking to get out of this podcast? I've set up an email account, a Facebook account, a Twitter account, and an Instagram so that people can give me feedback. My Gmail is CelticHistoryPodcast at gmail.com. My Twitter is at CelticHistoryPod. And Facebook and Instagram, just search for the Celtic History Podcast and you should find me. Second announcement is one I'm far more excited about. I have brought on an extremely talented writer for a project I'm very excited about. So we're going to keep the chronology, you know, I write that and I dictate that, but there are going to be bonus episodes which will present a fictionalized narrative set in Central Gaul, specifically with the Adui tribe. We plan to have this story set before, during, and after the Gallic War. We can see what Gaul was like before the Romans arrived, we can see what Gaul was like when the Romans were conquering, and we can see how Romanized Celts lived, and what they thought about that. I'm very excited about this, and I hope you all are too. Ian is an extraordinarily talented and qualified writer, and I can't say enough about his excellent work. So, thank you again, and I'll see you next week with the Corded Ware Culture. <laughs>